Good afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, and this is KUAF 91.3. You can always listen to us at KUAF.com. On today's show, the music of Right Field. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore brings us that musical profile in our second half hour in about four minutes. A quick visit with Gloria Steinem before she speaks on the University of Arkansas campus tonight. Arkansas's attorney general is no longer running for governor. A.G. Leslie Rutledge says instead she'll seek the GOP nomination for lieutenant governor, joining a crowded race that already includes State Senator Jason Rapert, the former head of the state GOP Doyle Webb, Arkansas's Surgeon General Greg Bloodsoe, Washington County Judge Joseph Wood, and businessman Chris Paquette. The Attorney General's departure from the governor's race leaves Sarah Huckabee Sanders as the only high-profile Republican running for that position. Last night, Sanders released a statement saying she thanks Leslie Rutledge for her leadership and that Sanders looks forward to uniting Arkansas behind her vision to grow the state's economy. There is a 614-case increase in people with COVID-19 in Arkansas. The Arkansas Department of Health also reports 14 more deaths from the disease and hospitalizations for the second consecutive day decreased by one patient. Arkansas Children's Research Institute will be part of a 14-state consortium dedicated to learning more about pediatric long COVID-19 cases. The project will help scientists better understand the long-term impacts of the virus on children across the country, and that project is funded by the National Institutes of Health. The Arkansas part of the study will combine research from both Arkansas Children's and UAMS. Mercy hospitals across the state, including Mercy Fort Smith and Mercy Northwest Arkansas, receive top marks for achievements in protecting patients from harm and errors in their hospitals. The LeapFrog Group is a national watchdog organization that measures errors and injuries to monitor patient safety. Mercy Fort Smith and Mercy Northwest Arkansas were given an A grade, making them two of only 11 hospitals in Arkansas to earn that grade. Talk Business and Politics reports a former professor in the University of Arkansas's Sam Walton College of Business will become the next president of the University of Memphis. Bill Hardgrave was unanimously selected by the University of Memphis's Board of Trustees for the position. He'll officially take office in May of 2022. Hardgrave is a native of Clarksville who spent 17 years at the University of Arkansas before moving into his most recent role as provost at Auburn. The number of people traveling this Thanksgiving forecast to be up 13 percent compared to last year. That's nearing pre-pandemic levels. The AAA says that's the biggest one-year increase since 2005. Spokesperson Nick Chavarria says the projection comes despite increasing fuel costs. Gas prices, uh, you know, in Arkansas, it'd be close to a dollar thirty, dollar twenty more than this time last year. Now, AAA, we're not expecting that really to deter travelers. Uh, you know, we find that that folks who may be traveling may find other ways to to maybe uh, you know trim their budget when traveling, maybe eating out less or or finding different accommodations. But compared to other states, he says Arkansas currently has the second cheapest fuel in the nation. Average cost for regular gasoline, $3.07 a gallon, compared to the national average of $3.41 a gallon. He says about 90% of all travel around Thanksgiving is expected to be by car. Arkansas Brassworks, a brass quintet of University of Arkansas music faculty, will perform tonight. The ensemble will be in concert in the Stella Boyle Smith Concert Hall on campus tonight, beginning at 7.30. The concert is one that was originally scheduled in 2020 before the pandemic shut down the campus. The concert's free, open to the public, 
and will also be streamed on the University of Arkansas YouTube page. The sixth-ranked JBU women's soccer team will host the Sooner Athletic Conference Tournament Championship Friday night. JBU advanced with last night's 5-0 win over Mid-America Christian. Friday's night match is scheduled to begin at 6 at Alumni Field in Siloam Springs. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball season is underway. It began last night in Bud Walton Arena with a 81-74 victory over Mercer. The women's basketball team opens their season tonight in Bud Walton, facing off against the Tarleton State Texans. This is Ozarks at Large. Tonight, Gloria Steinem will be on the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of the University of Arkansas Distinguished Lecture Series to participate in a modified question and answer session moderated by Angie Maxwell, the director of the Diane Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society at the University of Arkansas. Tonight's event is free. It begins at 7 in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center with doors opening at 6.30. Gloria Steinem is a journalist, writer, activist, and social justice advocate who's been part of the national conversation for decades. Yesterday afternoon, we had a chance for a brief conversation with her in advance of tonight's session. She says speaking to a campus audience in 2021 is different than speaking to such a group 20 or 40 years ago. Oh, yes, it's it's very different because the idea of social justice movements is not only real in daily life, but also students probably have been studying them. So they are, you know, part of um, our texts as well as our lives. They are no longer as, um, how shall I say, as, as confined to Newspapers and current events, uh, they're, they're much more kind of pillars of everyday life. Tonight's gathering in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center is designed, she says, to be not an audience just listening to her speak, but an audience talking with each other. We form a talking circle, and it's true that, uh, you know, the speaker starts out, you know, by... Uh, initiating the discussion, but the best part by far is the discussion with the audience because each person in the audience knows things no one else knows. And the the best part for me is when um, we're well into it and someone on the one side of the audience asks a question and someone on the other side answers it. And there will likely be plenty to discuss. Steinem has been fostering conversations for years. She's the co-founder of Ms. Magazine, a co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus. In 2005, a co-founder of the Women's Media Center. There are thousands of articles, columns, books, lectures, and appearances over the years as well. She says conversations like tonight's on a college campus can feature predominantly younger people, but she says she's seen a rise in gatherings of a diverse crowd. On a campus, of course, it's, it generally skews younger, but more and more students are coming from diverse ages and groups. It's not; it's no longer uh, just the classical age group it used to be. Uh, and usually, uh, and I imagine this is the case there, will be the case there too, a, 
announcement has gone out to the community, so it's it's uh, not just students, and and that's fun because often people in the audience are meeting each other during the discussion who might not otherwise talk to each other. Gloria Steinem's career in writing, speaking, and activism spans national debates about women's rights, social justice, same-sex marriage, and other matters that have, to some level, each created friction. She says she doesn't subscribe to the idea that the country is now more divided than any time in the recent past. I don't think so. I think that how the reason that seems true is because we had a very polarizing president for a while. And even though he never represented, Trump never represented more than a third of the country, uh, it, he was perceived as, uh, because he had been elected, as, as representing something close to the majority, which he never did. I mean, you know, because I come from Manhattan, where Trump comes from, <laughs> it was more obvious, perhaps, to those of us who lived here, because he was clearly never someone who had earned his own way, you know, was always inherited money. He was not uh, a leader here, but it may have been less obvious to people who hadn't lived in the same community. As for one of the agents often targeted as a root of divisiveness in 2021, social media, Steinem says she isn't part of the right age group to be an expert about the matter, but... Uh, I just find myself wishing that there was a instant fact-checking source next to social media, because the the danger is that it's um, perceived as reality when it's a small fragment of of reality. When asked if she has advice for people who are working for causes but might be discouraged by continued battles or defeats, Gloria Steinem says forward is the only way to move. It, it's it's not possible, I mean, in the same way that it's not possible to see suffering and injustice in your family, it's not possible to see it uh, in the world around you without at least trying to do something about it. As for the future, Steinem says she's optimistic because she says she cannot imagine another way to make progress on important issues. Yes, no, because optimism is a form of planning. You know, I mean, what what we imagine will happen is more likely to happen. So if we're pessimistic, we're more likely to um, increase the negative, and if we're optimistic, we're more likely to increase, in a very practical sense, the positive. Gloria Steinem speaking to us yesterday. She's speaking tonight as part of a moderated question-and-answer session that will be moderated by Angie Maxwell from the University of Arkansas at 7 o'clock in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus. Doors open tonight at 6.30. It is free. It's open to the public. No tickets required. Face coverings will be required when inside at the event. And one more note about tonight. Those attending can park in the Stadium Drive parking garage at a cost of $1.70 per hour, You'll need to know your license plate number before approaching the pay stations. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu connect for more information. 
As we mentioned earlier on this hour of Ozarks at Large, Arkansas's Attorney General Leslie Rutledge is leaving the Arkansas governor's race. That clears former White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders' path to the Republican nomination. Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics has more. Well, there's been some speculation for months that Attorney General Leslie Rutledge would exit the governor's race and run for lieutenant governor. There was even a rumor at one time she might run for Congress. Um, Her former GOP rival, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, has proved to be just a juggernaut on the campaign trail. Uh, She came in immensely popular. She's been good with crowds. She's raised a lot of money. And I think this was really a realization uh, by Attorney General Leslie Rutledge uh, that she was going to have a tough time winning that GOP nomination. Now, she enters a very crowded field in the Republican primary for the lieutenant governor's um, nomination. Already, there are five Republican candidates in that race, uh, and some of them are pretty high profile. State Senator Jason Rapert, State Surgeon General Greg Bledsoe, former Arkansas Republican Party Chairman Doyle Webb, just to name a few. But I think that Rutledge enters this field with a couple of advantages. She's got name ID. She's got uh, the ability to move some of her money over from the governor's race, and she's a pretty good fundraiser on that front. And she's got a very conservative track record. But I think the most important thing that will help her out in this GOP primary is that she will build some goodwill with Republican voters who really did not want to see a gubernatorial primary contest between Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Leslie Rutledge. So there'll be some Republican voters relieved that they don't have to choose sides in that GOP governor's race. Roby Brock is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. And our partnership with Talk Business and Politics continues on tomorrow's Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large with the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report with Paul Gatling. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 on KUAF 91.3. You can listen to our show whenever you'd like if you subscribe or download the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's free and available through all major podcast distributors. At the UN Climate Summit, some of the people with the most to lose insist they aren't victims, they're warriors. For me as a Pacific Islander, a lot of people think my role here at COP is to come and cry. Like I owe them my trauma, mm-hmm. but I don't owe you my trauma. Their refrain, we're not drowning, we're fighting. I'm Ari Shapiro reporting from Glasgow, Scotland this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF, and you can also listen by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. Rabbit Foot Lodge, built in 1908 on a forested spring-fed hillside along Silent Grove Road in northwest Springdale, is undergoing restoration. The dwelling has been described as a cross between a Chinese tea house and an Ozarks mansion, and the surrounding grounds are forested with ancient white oak, magnolia, and catalpa trees. The lodge and land, now owned by the city of Springdale, is special to Springdale Mayor Doug Sprouse, who, working with municipal planners, is finalizing restoration of the historic site. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with the mayor, and she brings us this story. The city of Springdale took possession of Rabbit Foot Lodge, a 3,200-square-foot, two-story Adirondack-style log cabin, in 2014. When it came up for sale, says Mayor Doug Sprouse. We acquired Rabbit Foot Lodge as part of the purchase of, uh, we bought about 40 40 plus acres from uh, Karen Compton and uh, who had owned the property, lived in in the property with her family for many years. On the National Register of Historic Places since 1986, Rabbit Foot Lodge has been continuously occupied, most notably by the late Senator J. William Fulbright and his family 
who lived there in the late 1930s. The final owner sold the lodge and property to the city for slightly over a million dollars on condition the structure be maintained. Philanthropist Jonelle Hunt pitched in a half million dollars to complete the sale. Now adjoining J.B. Hunt Park, the city's largest park at 180 acres. That includes Lake Springdale, which was uh, one of Springdale's original water sources, and uh, also the uh, the Razorback Greenway. The uh, beautiful portion of the Razorback Greenway runs beside the lake and, and through parts of J.B. Hunt Park. The lodge has remained mostly vacant since the sale. It has been setting uh, idle. And, uh, and we, it was time to put some significant dollars into it. The city spent over $400,000 to replace the roof and acid wash and rechink the logs. Phase two, which will cost $748,000, will restore the lodge's spacious second-story wraparound porch, certain windows, a stone walkway, building ADA access, and adding garage doors to an old carport built by the Fulbright family. There's a significant amount. I'm, I'm not surprised it's over 700, almost three quarters of a million dollars for this next phase. Restoration costs are being provided by the city's general funds reserve. Some interior work is planned later on. Last summer, Springdale City Council approved over $25,000 to place 30 acres into a conservation easement with Northwest Arkansas Land Trust. Yeah, we've done a conservation easement put in place. That was actually a an agreement or part of the contract a requirement uh, of our purchase of, of when Karen sold the, the property to us. Uh, we did have a conservation easement uh, and, and the land trust is now has now been engaged and we have a we have uh, put that all in place so that uh, land will the land around the lodge will be protected. Construction of a public pavilion and restrooms, as well as trails to connect to the Razorback Greenway nearby, are written into that agreement. Phase two restoration is expected to be finished next spring, followed by some interior work, which is not nearly as extensive, the mayor says. The public is welcome to visit the site, but not drive onto the property. It's just really going to be a show place and, and when it's done. And, and we want the public to enjoy it and to use it. I mean, you're free to walk the ground. It's part of the park. Uh, it's a beautiful park with walking trails and and uh, and certainly free to do that. We just ask that people kind of stay back from the building and not get up on the porch. And uh, But you can walk around the building and look at it. Restoring a public-use access road, which was once the original entrance extending off Silent Grove Road adjacent to Hunt Park, is planned. As for public use of the lodge, when fully renovated and accessible, Mayor Sprouse says it's not yet been decided. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And if you're wondering about the name Rabbitfoot, the original property traces back to an 1857 land grant deeded as remedy for claims arising under the 1830 Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. That treaty was struck between the Choctaw Tribe and the United States government. It was the first of many treaties under the Indian Removal Act. Under that law, over 100,000 indigenous people were removed from their ancestral lands, often by military force, to make way for white settlers. And more history just ahead on Ozarks at Large. It'll be time for our Wednesday tour through University of Arkansas history with Charlie Allison. Stay tuned.
This is Ozarks at Large. One of the most famous aspects of the University of Arkansas is the school's mascot for the athletic teams, the Razorback. The teams haven't always been the Razorbacks, the first nickname, the Cardinals, but that fierce pig is synonymous with almost all things U of A in some way. And there is that very famous story of how the mascot came to be, complete with a marker recounting the legend in downtown Fayetteville near the train station. But, well, that story may just be a story, a legend, a myth. Enter Charlie Allison, the executive editor of University Relations at the U of A, to dig deeper as he continues his Wednesday trips through University of Arkansas history in honor of the school's sesquicentennial. The word Razorback, believe it or not, did not start out as a conjoined suffix to the word Arkansas, much less as a reference to hogs. During the early 1800s, the term was used almost exclusively for the razorback whale, Balenoptera fissalis, better known as the finback or rocco whale. Later, the term began to be applied to any animal with a pronounced spine, such as gaunt horses and bowed-up bovine. Meanwhile, during that same period, feral hogs roaming the south were more often referred to as tonawandas, land sharks, or even land pikes. The earliest reference I could find referring to a feral hog as a razorback came in 1843 from a correspondent to the American agriculturist. He reported his success at using beets as feedstock for his breeding sows and store hogs, but he warned that, quote, a Berkshire will get fat where a razorback would starve. The correspondent made no attempt to explain what he meant by the word razorback. He clearly thought that his reading audience knew that a razorback was a feral hog and that they do not gain weight easily. Initially, most of the references to razorback hogs through the 1870s did not single out Arkansas for identification with the wild hog. The term was used for feral hogs throughout the southern United States. Folklore across the South maintained that the feral pigs roaming the forests were the descendants of European hogs brought to North America by Hernando de Soto during his ill-fated search for gold that ended here in Arkansas in the spring of 1541. The Arkansas writer Bob Lancaster was, was skeptical of this claim, so he searched through the reports from DeSoto's expedition and concluded that European pigs had indeed occasionally escaped from DeSoto's herds and that those hogs had been procreated. He wrote, quote, Ancestors of the Razorbacks scattered throughout the South, with no natural enemies to speak of and no shortage of acorns. The truth of whether the Razorback is a descendant of DeSoto's pigs is probably less important here than the fact that Arkansas enjoy the notion that these wild hogs of the woodland were descended from the stock of a conquistador, and that their ancestral porcine progenitors were roaming the Arkansas hitterlands some 66 years before the advent of Jamestown, nearly 80 years before the arrival of the Mayflower. You might say these were the first colonial interlopers of America. 335 years later, in 1876, the same year that the university's first graduates earned their college degrees, the city of Fayetteville held a, what they called a hog fair. It was organized to celebrate the substantial improvement of the stock of hogs in the county. A story in the Fayetteville Democrats said that the, quote, Razorbacks and hail splitters are rapidly disappearing and their places are being taken by a better class of stock. If that sounded a little defensive, it was because jokes about the Razorback hog had begun to spring up across the South in the 19th century. Early efforts to make fun of the Razorback hog had no attachment to Arkansas, but were rather simply poking fun at a funny animal. A Texan, for instance, told the tall tale of a Razorback hog that, quote, ate a stick of dynamite, blew up, 
broke all the windows in the house, wrecked the barn, killed two mules, and was a mighty sick hog. (laughs) Perhaps the simple euphony of combining the word Arkansas with the word Razorback was enough to bring the jokes to rest on what had previously been the bear state. The Arkansas writer Charlie Mae Simon boiled the descriptions down to their essence when she wrote a children's book in which the Razorbacks were the antagonists. She wrote, quote, Many a man would rather see a panther or a wildcat hanging around his farm than a herd of Arkansas Razorback hogs. Lean, lanky, and hungry all the time, they could out-eat any animal that ever lived, and they still didn't weigh enough to leave their footprints where they walked. Their snouts were as long as walking sticks and their backs as sharp as razors. They were so thin it took two of them standing together to cast a shadow. If one was by himself, he'd have to stand up twice. Well, a train traveler from Kansas City passing through Arkansas drew a straight line between the state and the feral hog. He wrote, quote, We were curious to know just what this state was that we had reached, which man had so neglected. But not until there loomed in view that historical animal with its long nose and razor back were we assured we were travelers in Arkansas. Another writer passing through Little Rock wrote, The only living being that I saw all day that seemed to have a move on him was uh, this razorback hog. He rooted in the ground with an energy that showed that his environments had not paralyzed his energies and made him the lazy, shiftless being that his two-legged fellow citizens seemed to be. By the end of the 19th century, the Razorback was no longer the butt of the joke, but often the measure of disdain for others. A newspaper editor in Kansas, for instance, looked for every measure of condescension he could find to describe a rival editor. He wrote of his competitor, quote, For over two long years he has been like a festering sore, a leech, a vampire, or fungus absorbing the lifeblood from the body politic. He endeavors to pay his bills about as much as the devil works to save lost souls. He is absolutely without good principles. He does not look men in the face, but hangs his head like a brute. His mind is as pure and his brain of the quality of a putrescent cabbage. If he had been created a dog, he would be a cowardly, sneaking, snapping yellow cur with his tail between his legs. If he had been created a hog, he would be an Arkansas Razorback. During the first decade of the 20th century, though, the jokes deriding Arkansas and Razorbacks were about to come to an end. Like other peoples that became saddled with an offensive derogatory term, Arkansasers, starting with the students at the University of Arkansas, took hold of the Razorback sobriquet and didn't let go. In 1909, the University of Arkansas football team went undefeated, led by the university's first full-time coach, Hugo Bezdek. The team thrashed regional powerhouses such as the University of Oklahoma and Louisiana State University. Halfway through the season, the University of Mississippi was so cowed that they sent a telegram to Bezdek to say that they would forfeit their game rather than come to Fayetteville as planned. According to popular legend, after the late-season game against LSU, Coach Bezdek told a crowd of fans and supporters that his boys had, quote, played like a wild band of Razorback hogs. The crowd liked the sound of that, so the story goes, and they understood the inherent traits of the Razorback. Lean, fast, ferocious. So soon, the Razorback was the newly adopted mascot. That's how the legend goes. Truth be told, the team was referred to as the Razorbacks in print and by students as early as 1905, three years before Bezdeg came to Arkansas. And they were frequently called the Razorbacks in stories and headlines throughout the 1909 season, well before the LSU game. To be honest, I could find no mention of the story about Bezdek and the wild band of Razorbacks in the newspapers and published sources during 1909. Not in the Memphis papers where the game was played. Not in Little Rock where the team stopped for a big celebration. 
and not in Fayetteville where a parade was waiting for the returning heroes. I couldn't find any mention of the story at all until 1977, so nearly 60 years after it was purported to have happened. There is no doubt, however, that 1909 was the year that the university students and the athletic teams embraced the Razorback as a mascot. Within a couple of years, the baseball team's jerseys included the silhouette of a lanky Razorback pig. And by 1913, Edwin Douglas had written the words for a new fight song that included Razorback as part of its lyrics. Two years later, the yearbook changed its name from the Cardinal to the Razorback. Today, of course, the Razorback is the emblem that draws all Arkansans together. It had started with that 1909 game, but built through the 20th century to 1964 when the football team completed its second undefeated season. Like the goddess Circe, the head football coach at the time, Frank Broyles, managed to turn every Arkansas man, woman, and child into a hog when his team claimed the national championship on January 1st, 1965. Ever since, the Razorback has become ubiquitous in all manner of form, from hog hats to license plates, from high art to baubles and trinkets, from hundreds of porcine-named restaurants to hundreds of millions of t-shirts. In 2018, an epic statue titled Wild Band of Razorbacks was unveiled outside Reynolds Razorback Stadium. A passel of six bronze Razorback hogs are depicted running, leaping, and jumping over a rugged landscape with water gushing out from underneath them. The myth, in this case, is clearly winning the day. To paraphrase a quote often attributed to Mark Twain, again without any sources, the Razorback myth can travel halfway across the state of Arkansas before the truth can strap on its football helmet. <laughs> Woo, pig, suey. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas, and almost every Wednesday this year, he's delivering a bit of history about the U of A as the school celebrates 150 years of existence. You can find out more about the University of Arkansas's sesquicentennial observations and celebrations by navigating toward 150.uark.edu. A little bit more about the Razorback as a mascot it's rare, but it is not completely unique to the University of Arkansas. There are at least two high schools that use the Razorback as a mascot. Texarkana, Arkansas High School mascot is the Razorback, as is the Panama, Oklahoma High School mascot in eastern Oklahoma. For several years, there was a basketball team in the National Basketball League in Australia, the West Sydney Razorbacks, but they closed down in 2009. There are at least two American football teams in Europe that, at least at one point, were the Razorbacks, one in Denmark and one in Germany. And for those of you who are especially into trivia and Razorbacks, the high school in the movie version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the mascot, the Razorback. This is Ozarks at Large. It's easy to leave a message for KUAF and your community by using the Connect button on the KUAF app for iPhone. Currently, one of our available topics include, what are you thankful for? As we approach Thanksgiving, what is usually a simple question might look different this season. Let us know what you appreciate by simply downloading the KUAF app for iPhone at the App Store, click the Connect button at the bottom of the screen, set up your account, and leave your message. You can also call the Connect line at 479-575-6577. That's 575-6577. KUAF Connect. Your voice matters. Music is just ahead on this edition of Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore will introduce us to Wright Field. Speaking of music, you can hear music from KUAF at any time of the day. KUAF2 is our HD station that's devoted 
24-7 to classical music. And KUAF3 is almost always jazz, though on the weekend we have encore broadcasts of KUAF's locally produced programs, including Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsburg, Jazz Scoop with Rob Wells, The Pick and Post with Mike Shirky, the KUAF Vinyl Hour with Lee Wood, and the Generic Blues Show with Paul Kelso. You can find schedules for both KUAF2 and KUAF3 online at KUAF.com. And to listen to those stations, it's absolutely free. You can listen on your HD radio, whether that HD radio is in your car or at home. You can ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF2 or please play KUAF3. You can go to the live streams at KUAF.com. And finally, you can stream... KUAF2, KUAF3, and KUAF91.3 for free by using the KUAF app. That too, free. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Entertainment Fort Smith, a monthly magazine with a comprehensive calendar of events covering live performances, dining, home design, lifestyles, and people profiles. Available at over 200 locations and on the web at efortsmith.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. Right Field is a musical duo consisting of singer Jack Blocker and guitarist and instrumentalist Reed Helsher. The two first met playing sports together in middle school in Texas, then reconnected at the University of Arkansas where they started writing songs together. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke with the band and Reed told him their early songwriting was pretty simplistic. Yeah, so the first songs we ever wrote and recorded together was like our beginning of our sophomore year of college, actually. And we didn't really have any idea what we were doing. So they just, the style was more of like this acoustic folk singer-songwriter thing, basically because it's all we knew how to do at the time. And it was where our two music tastes conjoined yeah we pretty much knew how to write words and play guitar and sing like it was just the bare bones of of what we knew how to do as musicians basically how has that changed over time have you seen you know more production kind of as you've gotten more comfortable with each other as you've gotten more comfortable with working in you know digital music style of stuff have you seen that kind of progress when it comes to the musicality of what you're doing yeah for sure i mean now now after doing an album and working with different producers and kind of understanding the music industry a little bit more and what it takes to create a song what it takes to create that type of song you know what type of people we need to get that um we can now pinpoint a little bit better like hey, this is what we actually like doing. This is what sounds good live. And now we know how to achieve what we want to achieve instead of this is what we can achieve. Yeah, and playing uh, playing live shows and how, how that's evolved for us over time since we started uh, making music like really influences the the type of songs that we're trying to write because of how much we love getting to play shows and experience that with people. Like we see what resonates there and we're like, okay, we, we really want to do more of that and the songs that we're making just to amplify this, this experience even more. So that like over time has really affected the type of music that we want to write. So 
the two of you come to Fayetteville to go to college. Uh, what role did playing music have on going to school? Was uh, was it just like was playing music just a cool thing to do, or were you hoping to be able to do it for a living? Uh, what were your aspirations musically? It was really cool for for a little bit. We kind of just we were playing shows in people's backyards. We were whenever we had enough money to to record another song, we'd just write another song and go record it. There was it wasn't really much of a, a fluid process, and there were uh, there were little to no expectations for the future. Honestly, we kind of were just doing it in the moment. We were having a good time, and uh, probably about. A year and a half, two years ago, right around two years ago, um, we kind of we were like maybe we sit down and we write a whole album and we really try to see what we can do with that, see where that takes us, and um, kind of over the past two years, I think we started we started recording that album like right when the pandemic started. Um, so that's kind of like the almost like the starting point that that Reed and I look at is like when we decided to write the album and, um, and just since then we've had more opportunities to, uh, to really buckle down and play a lot of shows and, um, see what it's like to, to travel around, uh, around the country in a, in a broken van and, uh, and live that life for a little bit. And so it's, it's been cool. We've, uh, we've, we've gotten to see it evolve from something that was really just kind of a cool hobby into, okay, here's like, I mean, we still don't even fully know, but like, here's what a career in this looks like. And so we're, we're, we're going after it right now. Let's talk a little bit about that first full length. Uh, what was the writing process like? Uh, what was it like going into a studio in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, putting out a record that you couldn't like immediately go out and tour on? What was that whole process like for y'all? I mean, every song was different on our album. Like our biggest streaming song, it took like two days to fully write and record, like quickest turnaround, totally just off the top of our head. And then some songs took over a year, basically, from start to finish. So they were all just different based off what we needed and, you know, different processes for different genres of music and what came naturally to us and what didn't. But the studio thing was pretty easy because we actually just did it at our friend Noah's house in Nashville. So we would just drive up for three or four days here and there, bust out a song or two and go home, write the next one, go back to Nashville when we had a few days that we could skip class and miss some school and feel good about that. So that was, it's pretty easy. Honestly, we had a great time. Talk a little bit about the idea that like now that it's safer to start being in crowds, you've started touring again. Uh, What has the energy been like on stage for you, especially when you think about before the pandemic, when you were touring and, and now, like, have you seen a difference in the energy that you have on stage? Um, I think in a lot of ways we've before, before the pandemic, any, any shows that we played were basically local shows. They were either, uh, we were from Dallas. So they're around the Texas area in Fayetteville. We're basically like playing to friends and it's almost just like built in energy there. And so really this past fall has been the first time we've ever toured and ever experienced that. And especially coming off a pandemic, um, there's, there were places that we went, especially like, um, 
West Coast, up in Washington, a lot of things still aren't uh, completely full capacity or opened up yet. So the crowds were a lot, a lot thinner than we were used to. And so there's, we've, we've really learned how to, uh, how to just enjoy playing our songs and how to create energy on stage rather than just feeding off of the energy of the crowd. Um, Cause we were the opening act on, uh, on the long tour that we went on. So that was a, that was a big point of emphasis was like, all right, there's no energy in the room when we start playing. So how do we, how do we muster this up? How do we make it happen? And so I think, I think we've grown a lot because of that. Um, but but yeah, I don't think I don't think touring. I think it's coming back. It's coming back slowly, um, and hopefully we'll uh, be back at full strength pretty soon. But just uh, with everything that's been going on, we haven't. We've we've definitely seen a difference in uh, in just like everybody feeling completely confident going to uh, going to shows. Yeah, how do you how do you go from that space where you're playing to friends or you're playing to groups of people who know who you are to going to a city you've never played in before with a room full of, you know, hipsters who are standing with their arms crossed just waiting <laughs> for the headliner to come on? How do you compensate for that as a band? Honestly, it's it's kind of fun for us. We kind of feel like we're it's where our competitive nature takes over a little bit. It's like a game. It's mm-hmm. like okay, so right now we're starting our set. People don't know who we are. People aren't engaged. People are getting drinks at the bar, talking in the back, you know, still getting their tickets at the door. It's like in the next 30 minutes of our set, how engaged can we get the crowd? Can we get them from that point A towards being completely pumped and ready for the next band by the end of our set? So it was kind of fun that through the 30 shows of that tour to dial in and see what we could do to win that game quicker and easier and you know some sometimes it was really crowd dependent like some shows it didn't really matter what we did people just didn't really care you know and then some shows we didn't have to do anything and people were super engaged and so it's it's you're always playing a different team but the it kind of made me feel a little bit of like when you play sports as a kid, like there's some parts of music that just still bring out a little bit of that competitive, like it's game time, let's go type thing that we really love. Yeah, that that really resonates with me too, like as a former athlete and as a former musician, uh, just this element of learning how do I how do I engage in a way that, you know, I have the fundamentals, I know how to do it, but how do I play in this capacity where I can convince everyone else that I know what I'm doing and I deserve your time and energy, right? For sure. Yeah, and and I was just thinking back, like, before before we went on tour, I used to get, because we would play a show here, two shows here, I used to get really sore after shows because, I mean, we jump around, we run around, you know, guitars are heavy and awkward sometimes when you're throwing them around and but by the end of the tour it was like we conditioned our bodies somehow to to do it to go out there and bang our heads around and run into each other but we weren't sore anymore that was just that was just something cool to look back on that there really is this physical element that you kind of have to get used to on the road so you're playing at George's on the 11th does this feel like a homecoming show for you guys? Oh, no doubt it does. It's it's a little different because 
most of our friends have moved away and graduated because we graduated in May. And so most people are gone, but it's still like the first real venue we ever played as a band. And it's, it was one of those big moments in it last year, or I guess earlier this year when we played, when we headlined it for the first time, when we saw like our name and then it, it was only a half capacity at the time. So it sold out pretty fast, but that was just a really cool thing for us. Like that was the first time we ever saw our name, a real outside, a real club venue with the block letters and all mm -hmm. that. So it's, it's definitely a special show to us, especially because I mean, the band would have never happened if we hadn't both gone to Arkansas and hadn't had a really supportive community around us. So it's it's definitely special. Yeah, that that last time that we played at George's um, was almost like the first time where we really got solid validation uh, from uh, and just like a response from the album because we weren't able to play any shows for it. I mean, we had. I mean, we had friends being like, hey, cool album that you made. And other than that, it was like, all right, cool. We just spent <laughs> we spent a really long time uh, making this and we got to play that show and just like and share it with that crowd and tons of friends, tons of people that we had never met in Fayetteville. And it really like I, I think to a degree, it'll always feel like a homecoming hometown show, just being in that room and just how much we love the city of Fayetteville. Um, so it, we're, we're really fired up to be back. What's on the horizon for the band? Are you planning on doing more touring in the near future or more singles coming out? Man, we're, we're taking a break from touring after Georgia's for a bit. The winter is not a good time to tour in general for bands. So that's going to be big album two time. You know, we, we're locked in with some producers that are really going to help elevate our sound and help us get to where we imagine our sound being. And so we're, we're really excited. We're going to be in full album mode as soon as we get back from the Georgia show. Let's talk a little bit about the, the single gone. Uh, we're going to play that here in just a little bit. Um, what was the inspiration for this song and, and why is this a song that, uh, that y'all have been pushing? Honestly, it's funny. Reed, Reed mentioned it earlier. That's gone is the song that came together the quickest on the album. And we were really kind of just looking through the, the songs that we had written so far for the album. It was kind of more towards the end of the of songs that came together for that record. Um, but we were like, oh, there's, there's a little bit too, too many slow songs. <laughs> too many intimate sad songs and we're like let's just let's write one that's fun let's let's sit down right now and have a good time and so we wrote that in a few hours we recorded it the next day and I feel like that's just how it goes where the one that you spend the least amount of time on ends up uh ends up going the furthest sometimes but uh, but yeah Gon's got um some good radio I think it started in Fayetteville playing on the radio but it's kind of been um bouncing around on the radio across the country um and so it's uh it's definitely been streaming wise radio wise been the most successful song off the album if that's how you want to look at it so yeah we kind of anytime we uh are doing something like this that's the that's the song that we go back to because it's uh it's 
the most accessible. I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a fun one for, for people to listen to, but, um, yeah, it's kind of funny how that happens. The one that probably had the least thought go into it out of all 10 songs on the album. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'm here with Jack and Reed. They are the co-pilots of the band Right Field. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. the band right field you can hear them tomorrow at george's majestic lounge in fayetteville i'm robin young in his new film belfast kenneth Branagh recreates the sectarian violence the seething mob he first heard then saw as a child in northern ireland the sound of bumblebees but no it wasn't bumblebees down at the end of the street what was for a second a swarm of such things became not a swarm but this rioting mob next time here now Here and now, this afternoon, beginning at 1 on KUAF 91.3. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, what to do when you want to continue showcasing local designers, but you can't have a runway show because of, well, you know, the pandemic. You make a movie. And so that's why it's a 10-part film is because each designer has their own specific segment. So 10 local designers and we have international designers. Yeah, there's designers from the Bahamas. There's a Bahamanian designer. Interform's fashion movie discussed, explained, and previewed on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 on KUAF 91.3. And you can always listen by subscribing to the KUAF podcast through any major podcast distributor. 
The Fayetteville Public Library welcomes author Susan Orlean to the FBL's new event center Sunday, November 14th at 2 p.m. Susan will be discussing her 2018 bestseller, The Library Book. This event is free and open to the public. Registration is available online at fayLib.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Hiawassee. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Weekend Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. You can find out more about KUAF at KUAF.com. You can find out more about this show at OzarksAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to keep up with what's on the program every day, maybe you miss something, well, we have a very easy, free way for you to do that. You can sign up for the KUAF Ozarks at Large email newsletter. When you sign up at KUAF.com, you'll get an email newsletter every Monday through Friday afternoon. It will list what was on the show that day, and it will provide direct links. So you can click straight through and listen to that feature, story, or interview. You can also use those links to share something you heard with friends or family through social media or email. Again, sign up for free right now at KUAF.com. Timothy Dennis produced today's edition of Ozarks at Large in the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio at KUAF. By the way, Timothy will be with us on tomorrow's show. It'll be time for his weekly Thursday roundup of live music opportunities for the next seven days. Contributors to this edition of Ozarks at Large included Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, Charlie Allison, and Daniel Carruth. Our theme is titled First to Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. More about Daryl online wherever you find out more about music. He is still found many weekday afternoons at 4 o'clock our time performing live, sometimes taking requests on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. Just put Daryl Sean into those search engines. That's all we have the time for for this Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us. We do appreciate your support and attention. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please be well. We'll talk again very soon.